The best message to get people to vote is the parade effect. Hey, everybody's voting. Your neighborhood's going to have like incredible turnout. Um, that gets people to vote. Oh, if it's something that like is going on everywhere, like think of the Obama wave. Like that got a lot of young people to vote in record numbers because everybody they knew was voting and the message was everybody's voting. The thing that inhibits turnout the most is exactly what Trump is trying to do and Democrats are taking the bait and repeating all over the place. Lower people's confidence in voting. It's got to be, we are turning out in record numbers to take back our democracy and it's going to work. Admittedly, this week was not what we had expected it to be when we were preparing for this podcast. We recorded the week of the first presidential debate and its aftermath, and after the president and the first lady's diagnosis with COVID-19. We wish them both a speedy recovery. But we're here to talk about something important, how to protect the people's vote during the 2020 general election, especially in the era of COVID. So that's what we're here to talk about today, voter security and how to spot troubles like potential voter suppression. I'm Carmen Four, your host for this podcast. It's part of a series called Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality, a series honoring the 100th anniversary of the women's right to vote, and also a series to gain a better understanding of elections, how they work, and to find out if there are ways we can help secure this year's vote in this election season. To do that, today I'm interviewing Dan Levy and Kevin Looper. Dan and Kevin are A-list political operatives with often opposing opinions and decades of political experience, working on candidate and ballot measures in Oregon and beyond. They're sought out for their advice, their insight, their knowledge of how elections work, you know, tradecraft, and how to turn out the vote. You can read more about them on our webpage for this podcast. Gentlemen, welcome to Turning Rights into Reality. (laughs) Thank you. Great to be here. Happy to have you. So we're starting all of our podcasts with a similar question for all of our folks. And Dan, I'm going to start with you. What is your voting ritual? Hmm. Um, my voting ritual. Let me let me take this at the angle of vote by mail. Um, I participated in the first all vote by mail statewide election in Oregon in a special election for U.S. Senate in 1995. So we were pioneers in that. And then four years later, the first presidential election that ever had an entire statewide vote-by-mail election occurred in Oregon in 2000, and I was very involved that year. I raise that to answer your question because I will tell you I am not a fan of vote-by-mail, but not for the reasons, although I would say I'm a Republican in exile, by the way. Uh, The Republicans' attacks on vote-by-mail have probably driven me to defend it and support it in ways I never thought possible over the last six to eight months. My opposition to vote by mail gets to your question. The ritual of going and casting a ballot in the privacy of a polling place, to me, is one of the great, if not the greatest, civic ritual uh, that defines being an American. Um, And so I will confess I miss that. I miss the ritual of meeting your neighbors in a church or grade school hallway or gymnasium to cast the vote. I miss the ritual of parents holding their child's hand and taking them into a voting booth, which I remember doing as a child. Um, So what I see happening now disturbs me very much, as you can tell. Uh, I I get emotional about it. So for now, with vote by mail, my ritual is to go in another room 
and fill out my ballot in private. Because I think being able to vote privately and to lie if you want to about who you voted is also a great American ritual. So maybe it's a long way of answering your question about ritual, but maybe you get a little sense of how I revere the effort of voting and the importance of voting in America. No, I could definitely hear it in your voice and how emotional and important that is to you. And, and Kevin, the same question. What is your voting ritual? I love it when Dan shows us just how, what a softy he is. <laughs> um, so uh, let me be clear first. Uh, Dan and I have proposed each other on a huge number of things. Often in formats like this, we find out surprising ways in which we agree. Um, uh, I'll get to that in just a bit. But my voting ritual, to go straight to the question, as Dan did not, I want to say, is I wake up on election day and and being a Democrat, in lieu of a shower, I just sage smudge. And then I fill out my ballot and I wait all day. And then I really love the ritual of driving down to drop off my ballot and hand it to the sweet League of Women Voters volunteer and watch it go into the box. Um, Voting in America used to be much more of a civic ritual tied to the mythology of democracy. Yeah. And it had inherent transparency to it. You could see everybody lined up at church or the school gym and see what turnout looked like. Over time, we've gone from it being a civic ritual to more of a personal one. Uh, But I also think in that move from civic to personal, Dan's right. The nature of the process of voting changes the outcomes, I think, the way people... It's a, it's a different thing, I believe, to go and vote on a school bond when you're voting at the school. Yeah. Consider whether or not you want to make an investment in public infrastructure when you're participating in a public process. When you're sitting at home upset at the state of the world, observing entropy unfolding and sort of alone with your worries, it's a different, more defensive voting posture. And and I think we lose something in that translation. Yeah. So wrapping up the conversation on vote by mail, it seems like the positions have shifted a bit. Fried Zakaria, who hosts CNN's Public Square, recently talked about the outcry about vote by mail. He posits this is because more Democrats are voting by mail and Republicans not as much. Uh, Is that true? And was that always the case? Well, I'll start with that. I won't go into too much detail. But in Oregon, when we debated vote by mail, the parties switched. Early on, there there was even a bill in the legislature in the late 90s that the Republicans promoted for vote by mail and the Democrats opposed. The earliest champion of vote by mail in Oregon was a Republican state legislator and then Secretary of State uh, Norma Paulus. The parties then in Oregon have changed and sort of switched on this, and I can get into maybe why. But in, in a certain sense, the states that have the stronger party structure and have a better mechanism that are better funded, that have a more organizational capacity, I think are going to tend to favor a three-week period of voting versus a three-day or two-day or one-day period of voting, because it gives an advantage to the people with more money, more infrastructure, more organizational opportunity to turn out your vote. Having said that, something has happened in the last, I would say, two to three years as the decline in institutions across the board and suspicion has grown. You get these conspiracies on both the left and the right about what's happening. And the danger of what President Trump has been doing with the Republicans in the last year in running down the integrity of the election process itself 
it's a very, very dangerous, dangerous thing that he's doing. Combined with mechanical issues about vote by mail that extend the time before you get a, a winner, those two things in combination with one another, I think are going to reap mayhem after this election because they're not going to get a result right away. And they're going to question the authenticity of it and the integrity of it for political reasons, not for operational or, or, or practical reasons. Once again, I'm forced to agree with Dan says, um, but it is the case that vote by mail is sold as something that increases turnout by increasing the, the options available to an individual about how and when you vote. But in system terms, favors those with institutional strength. It gives them more time to exert influence mechanically on who you're communicating with and getting ballots back in. The argument for this came essentially from a very established position around the idea of convenience. Yeah. Because the people for whom it's convenient are people who own homes, have a stable address, and are affluent enough to choose when they want to vote. Um, so there are inherent biases in that move that generally don't get challenged because we do live in a world right now where it's mostly been incorporated in Democratic states. It's mostly being challenged by Republicans. So Democrats like me's job is to defend the system. Right. And it's very rare that we have a forum like this. And by the way, strategically, this is a horrible time for me to, to be admitting with Dan, that what vote by mail did that wasn't recognized early on is opened up an incredible array of options to try to interfere with the voting process that haven't yet been seized upon because until Trump, nobody was evil and pernicious in their intent enough to try to figure out how to go screw with it. We've mostly been saved by the incompetence of bureaucracy and the admission of all of our elections, in person and vote by mail. And, and that's not a bad thing, because the more open the process is and the more people would have to participate in a conspiracy, the better. That makes it less likely to happen. But the technological trends and the trends towards making this uh, less public in, in a, a whole lot of ways create a greater array of options for those who just want to mess with the results. And that's what we're seeing now. And it's gone from being a, a side effort where we've seen voter suppression and interference tied to local efforts or particular campaigns to now being a system-wide effort on behalf of the presidency of the United States. So what you're saying is that vote by mail has a number of issues, be they inherent bias or security concerns. You know, and I appreciate all that. And we're in this strange dynamic with COVID that's worldwide and clearly going to impact the elections and how voters just feel safe and showing up. So what are campaigns doing to help voters in the COVID environment be able to have access to the ballot? Well, they're doing a lot to make it seem like it is, and every campaign wants to try to assert that they can have control over outcomes. So there's a ton that they're trying to do to do the facade of this. But in reality, they're doing squat, because the only ways that you can actually measurably increase turnout are by increasing registration and then doing messaging at the end that helps to create the stakes by which people might decide to vote. Um, the problem we have right now is mechanically, all the things that you can do to uh, to try to increase turnout, knocking on people's doors and picking up ballots, all those things, very marginal effect, by the way. But it's still the difference maker in a lot of close races. But it's a small effect, and now it's completely off the table. You're not knocking on anybody's doors. Dan, you want to say something? I'm sorry. You know, one thing that good government 
types that don't run campaigns or that people that are responsible for administering elections don't really like to admit is that turnout is driven by the quality of the campaigns that are run as much as the mechanics of, of how the elections are administered. Or God forbid, the quality of the candidates. Yeah, candidates, yeah. Quality of candidate, quality of campaign, more money, greater competitive election, all of that stuff, that's going to drive turnout. The other thing I want to point out, which is very much, I think, misunderstood, elections are really administered at the county level. So we, we have statewide elections that are administered at the county level. We have national elections that are administered at the state and county level. State laws govern, for the most part, the legal procedures and framework of how elections are occurred, but they are administered and operationally run by county elected officials. And so you take, let's say, a very Democrat county government that could have these long lines and terrible and all this stuff, and they'll point the finger up at the Republican governor or something like that to say, well, he or she is to blame for all of this. Well, a lot of times they're just incompetent in terms of having enough polling places, having enough infrastructure, having enough time, all those sorts of things. So there's a lot of blame to go around. Now, the first day of October, the governor of Texas literally shut down ballot collection stations and is now limiting a single ballot drop box to each county, which is ridiculous either by volume or by geography. It's, it's patently unfair, undemocratic, and is, and is voter suppression. It's, it's, it's rotten. Um, but it's a complicated relationship between our federal, state, and local elections, who they're administered, what laws govern them, what laws don't. We don't have national elections. We have 50 statewide elections for president that are administered by county election officials. And all those pieces need to work together. And that is oftentimes forgotten. I, I got to tell you, I think we're having this podcast, which I hope people find interesting, but I, I want to be clear from my assessment as a political operative. We're having this because there is a fundamental change when you have the White House trying to figure out how to suppress the vote. Yeah. And delegitimize the election, which is different even than suppressing the vote. But it is the case, just inherently, that the closer you get to looking at the details about the way our elections are administered, the more paranoid you will become. No answer to any question is reassuring. It is a mess. The reassurance that has come to me over time is that it's really rare that conspiracies can actually hold any large number of people involved with them. And because they're administered, as Dan correctly points out, through the county level, whatever malevolences exists out there is usually on a small scale. The problems that I see that need to get looked into is when you have a couple of firms that are administering all the voting machines around the country, and they might have bias to them, uh, then all of a sudden that's an area you ought to look at. And then also, we on the Democratic side tend to love to talk about how we need vote by mail because of uh, uh, paper ballots. The question that never gets asked that still burns at my heart is, so what do paper ballots do? Because there's precisely no evidence of anybody being an audit of the paper ballot. Right. All they do is go into a box, they go into the storage, and no one looks at it. So until we have a system in which there's actual accountability built into it and people check to see if the vote count is right, we're all just positioning around the central argument here of what makes people turn out. Because here's what we know about what drives voter turnout. 
For a long time, we did messaging about how important your vote is. Oh God, we told everybody like your vote matters. But then the academics came in and studied turnout and they discovered that that message was inhibiting turnout. The best message to get people to vote is the parade effect. Hey, everybody's voting. Your neighborhood's going to have like incredible turnout. Um, that gets people to vote. Oh, if it's something that like is going on everywhere, like think of the Obama wave. Like that got a lot of young people to vote in records numbers because everybody they knew was voting and the message was everybody's voting. The thing that inhibits turnout the most is exactly what Trump is trying to do and Democrats are taking the bait and repeating all over the place. Lower people's confidence in voting. That was my, my next question for you all. Is that effective? I mean, challenging, causing doubt. Are, are people buying into that? Does that work? People do. The swing margin, sorry, I'm lapsing into the technology here, but the voters who might not vote are not like you and me. They don't follow the election until the very end. And they have an inherent sense that, you know what? It doesn't really matter. Nobody listens to me. So if you tell them this election's fixed, or there's going to be people watching me, or you want me to vote because you're afraid that our vote's going to be stolen. Those are all reasons for me to not care. They're negative things. And instead, what Democrats should be talking about is we're not going to let this election be stolen. It sounds like a subtle difference, but it's not to the people who receive the message. It's got to be, we are turning out in record numbers to take back our democracy. And it's going to work. Dan, I'm going to shut up for a second. For you. Well, I just say I'll try to take the Republican point of view on this a little bit here. Republicans got a problem. They're kind of playing a, a losing hand here in the sense that they're trying to, in the Trump victory over Hillary Clinton, she was maybe the only person he could have beat, um, is that they're trying to squeeze more votes from a coalition of theirs, Republicans, that is shrinking. And so to do that, they in places want to put barriers to try to, to plug the holes, if you will. Now, I think that's a losing hand. It may have, it may have, Republicans may have won, Trump may have won four years ago, but that's not a, an argument that that's a, a trend. I actually think four years earlier after Romney lost, the Republican Party did a report and said, we need to figure out how to become more attractive to more people. So Republicans have a substantive issue about the policies and proposals and candidates that they put forward to be more attractive to a broader set of constituents. You could argue that people that come from Latin America, immigrants from Hispanic countries and all that should be small business, people of faith, a lot of things that should be a part of the Republican coalition going forward. George W. Bush got 44%, I think, of the Hispanic vote. But the anti-immigration, intolerant, racist, bigot, all that stuff is, is a losing. To, to think that you have to even say that, that that's a losing strategy. <laughs> it's also morally wrong, but it's also just a losing strategy. Having said all of that, and I hope you understand where I'm coming from. Republicans do have some legitimate claims that are reasonable and fair about some of the concerns about vote by mail and other things. One, I think that these deadlines that are getting extended farther and farther past election day 
are bad for the confidence that people are going to have in the democracy. Oregon's figured out how to have a postmark. You have to get it into the box by 8 p.m. And sometimes that means we don't know our election results for a couple of days after, but it's not three weeks. And if you look, I just saw a summary of some of the dates now that people are allowed to cast their vote or, or get it in or whatnot. We're two and three weeks after November 3rd. That's not going to be good. And just because Donald Trump is complaining about it doesn't make it wrong. Um, the second thing is having courts get involved rather than elected legislatures and county elected officials, getting courts increasingly involved in deciding the mechanics of election, obviously Bush versus Gore set the, the standard Supreme Court, but getting these state and federal judges involved in setting the terms of elections, that, that's not what happens in America. That branch of government should not be involved. I mean, it should be in a very extreme case but not in setting administrative policy for the elections. So those are the two biggest things that I see are arguments being made by Republicans for the most part. I actually think if Trump were making the argument, a lot of Democrats might agree too, but things have become so tribal. Um, but there are problems in this and it undermines the confidence in the result. When you get judges involved, when people don't know within a few days or a couple of days who the winner is, and that's what I'm, you know, I've, I've come out in favor of Biden. I hope he wins in a big landslide in these states so that we're not going to have multiple states where there's close elections and we're into Thanksgiving and Christmas. That really worries me about the people's confidence in and, and the peaceful transition of and the legitimacy of an election. You raise a point that I, I actually have been curious about, and it seems unavoidable given how many people are just going to have to vote again, given the overlay of COVID. How do we calm that temperature down about timeline versus getting it right? Well, I would say this with with apologies, because I understand you want to crawl into this for lawyers uh, to talk about. And that's fair enough, because Dan's right. There's a ton of issues here to explore. But I do believe that the best way to deal with this is not deal with it right now. There's one message right now that can get us onto the best path of preserving our democracy. And that is Trump has already lost this election. Yeah. And we're not going to let him, no matter what he does, take that away from the American people. And we're going to have record turnout to demonstrate our faith in democracy. Having said that, I do want to make very clear that the purpose of this program and this discussion is so desperately needed because our democracy is in shambles and there's no reason to feel good about it. And after this, it'd be nice if there was some work done to actually provide accountability and fairness into the voting system because a patchwork system with judges interfering all over the place undermines confidence in the judges and in our democracy. And we don't administer elections very well. We mostly leave it to people who we just trust and we shouldn't because a large number of them when you're talking about the county level across America, are incompetent twits, and they're not being looked over. And somebody needs to be doing that. And it'd be nice, by the way, if we took that out of the party structure, because mostly are overseen by secretaries of state who are always seen as partisan, even though they're trying to pretend to be independent, always. Final quick question. How then can people engage in helping with voter protection in this election cycle? And in particular, those with a legal background who can bring a particular skill set to do today to help. Mostly what you can do right now is use the fact that you are an overly informed human being to go make sure everyone you know votes. 
Well, I'll, I'll direct my comments at the 2% of your legal listeners who are maybe Republicans. Um, <laughs> there are a process of, in the old days it was called poll watching. You can go to county elections divisions and observe and be an, an official observer for your local political party or a candidate if you're supporting a candidate. But that does exist if you're interested in trying to get into the game of how this works. Um, that, that exists. The second thing that would exist after the election is every state legislature has a committee that deals with how elections are administered or governed, I should say. They're administered at the county level. Come to it with an open mind and try to acknowledge that what we want is the most people voting. We want a result that people can have confidence and trust in and both parties are going to try to game the system to their advantage. So nobody shows up with clean hands. I love that Dan goes to bed at night thinking that Republican lawyers showing up to poll watch are going to help people vote. <laughs> That's astounding. <laughs> the whole process, by the way, of Trump trying to drive people to go to the polls to watch uh, stuff, not talking legally oh. here like Dan did. Dan's not saying this. I don't want to castigate him yeah. for it. But the process that Trump is talking about is go show up to, to the polls to watch is all about voter intimidation and trying to drive turnout. They send out messages reminding voters of color that if you vote, this might trigger you to have everything from jury duty to arrests for parking tickets or child support. They, they, and they really do say arrests, not just fines. As, as, and none of it's true. But they do send out that kind of information to try to intimidate. And then they want people to know that if you go to that voting place, you are going to be greeted with hostility to try to increase the trust. So I know Dan's supporting that in any way. I just like putting him close to it so he feels uncomfortable. <laughs> well, it, it's a yeah. good point for folks to know it's another form of potential suppression. I want to thank you both for all of your insightful comments today, both in terms of what folks can do today by going to county election offices to be a poll watcher and also thinking future forward to how we secure our elections. And I think one of the things I want to do for folks as we're leaving this podcast is leave folks with a additional resource. There is a nice interactive web link on the New York Times webpage. If you don't know how to register in your state or what your, your mechanism is for voting, we're going to post that link for you so you can go to make sure you know how to register, when to register, and how your state votes. Help yourself, help a family member, and make sure you're registered properly and that you get out to vote. It counts. It really does. With that, I want to thank both Dan and Kevin for your insight and for your hard work on this election cycle. And hopefully on the other side, uh, we'll be able to institute some of those good ideas you brought forward today. Thank you for doing a wonderful role of adjudicating between us. We appreciate it. Happy to be here. Everybody make sure to vote.